Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. One thing is pretty clear about doing exploration archaeology. Our understanding of expeditions, our assumptions about them, the kinds of things we take for granted... All of that changes pretty quickly once we start digging things up. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, PJ Capilotti discusses exploration archaeology and its value in understanding expeditions from the Pacific voyage of Kontiki by Tor Heyerdahl, to the Arctic airship expeditions of Walter Wellman. We even spent some time talking about fictional expeditions, such as the voyage of the Orca in the movie Jaws. Capilotti is a professor of anthropology at Penn State Abington, and he's the author of many books, really too many to name here, but his latest book, Adventures in Archaeology, The Wreck of the Orca II, and Other Explorations, was recently published by the University Press of Florida. P.J. Capilotti, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Michael. So in your book, your most recent book, um, Adventures in Archaeology, you say that uh, one struggles to establish the reality of the artificial. I was wondering, I found that such a striking line. I was wondering if you could explain. I think uh, because I go back and talk about childhood adventures, uh, you walk along creeks, you walk along rail lines, but it takes, I think, some time to realize which one is natural and which one is artificial and what exactly it means to be artificial. And the idea, uh, the thought really didn't hit me with full force until I started doing work in the Arctic where you're confronted with this huge natural landscape, beautiful and magnificent, where there are these small little pockets of human presence. And that then it really kind of strikes you that Humans have these uh, this, the, these ways of altering their landscape, and that got me to thinking back to childhood and what part of my childhood landscape was natural and what part was artificial, and coming to the conclusion that almost the entire thing was artificial. Yeah, it's a really interesting and striking way to, to begin the book. Um, one of the things I found also very interesting about this book was 
your discussion of the remains of the Orca II, which was was not actually the boat, but the kind of replica, non-functioning boat that was used in the movie Jaws. And you describe it as a kind of Disney version of a maritime hunting vessel. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Orca II, this boat, as well as your your interest in kind of pursuing the archaeological story of that boat. It's it's a it's a great story, uh, and not only because uh, again going back to my childhood, I, I think I saw Jaws a hundred times. Uh, so so I, I sort of lived on the Orca for <laughs> the entire the entire year of 1975, 1976, 1977. We had a little theater that would show uh, old movies. And so it was one of these movies that came around, you know, months after it had left the, the regular theater and you could go and see it for a dollar. So having nothing else to do in the 1970s before the internet and uh, smartphones and cable TV and all the rest of it, we would go down there and watch this movie. So quite by accident, I on one of these many anniversaries, uh, I, I saw uh, an article about this remains of this iconic vessel sitting on a beach sort of forlornly uh, broken apart uh, on on uh, on a beach in Martha's Vineyard and and that got me to thinking you know how did it get there and why isn't it in the Smithsonian yeah <laughs> with next to the next to uh, uh, the ruby slippers from the wizard of oz and so i started to untangle this try to untangle this whole story and it is kind of a convoluted story uh, that there were two vessels one was a working fishing vessel, but but the, the fellow who did the design for Jaws, fascinating character, Joe Alves, he, he wanted to make a vessel that was menacing, as menacing in, in some ways as the shark was, so uh-huh. that you had a kind of a equivalent battle there between this, this kind of maniac shark hunter and this maniac shark. So you don't see many black fishing vessels. You just don't see many black vessels, period. You might see, you know, black tugboats, of course, but not pleasure boats, not yeah, uh, fishing boats and so forth. So it was painted black, and it had burgundy. When it where where it wasn't painted black, it was burgundy. So it was very dark, and the the mast was so absurdly oversized. Where Quint, the shark fisherman, had this crow's nest. So that that was not terribly realistic. And it had this enormously elongated bowsprit where Quint hunted the shark and so forth. So there was there was so many elements, and of course the the the, the windows weren't these tiny portholes. They were huge windows. So that you could, when you were sitting there in the cabin with the crew, you could, you'd see the ocean uh, out these huge windows. And all of these things were done for, you know, to kind of make a Hollywood and, as I say, kind of Disney version of what, what someone who's a landlubber would, would look at. Oh, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense as, a, as, somebody, as a vessel that somebody would hunt a shark, even though it looks nothing like a vessel that would do those things. So it was already this kind of Hollywood icon. And... The uh, the couple, there was a, a man and a woman who had helped Steven Spielberg make that film and uh, doing all the waterside boat driving and so forth, because it was a very complicated production, saltwater environment, wasn't very friendly toward film equipment and so forth. So they had barges, they had small boats, uh, boats were running the crew and the actors back and forth to the, the set when they were on the water and so forth. And the regular working version of the Orca was a Nova Scotia uh, designed uh, fishing boat, which had these, again, it was white, but painted with these colors and put had these kind of strange features on it. 
And that got shipped out after the production was over. It was bought by one of the people on the production and wound up its days at Universal Studios and eventually rotted and sank into a lagoon out there uh, and then was salvaged and chucked into a dump about 20 years ago, which left just this copy that was done for stunt purposes. It was They almost pulled apart the working vessel during the filming of the, of the movie. So they needed a, uh, they needed a stunt copy that could do just do that stunts. They could tow it. They could fl- almost flip it, almost capsize the thing, and then bring it back and do this many times. So they made a fiberglass co- copy of that or the or the working vessel. So this vessel didn't have a motor on it or anything, but it did have these strange barrels mounted underneath it that you could fill with water and then pump air to them to get the water out and and make the vessel heal and so forth. And you tell this the story of how this um, this replica basically you know, begins to kind of corrode and decay uh, up alongside of these other boats on the beach. It's actually rather poetic as you describe the ways that the, you know, the artificial boat kind of finds its place next to these other, you know, maritime objects that have different histories. I was just wondering for you as an archaeologist, what do you find interesting in the story of the Orca too? Well, I think that, you know, to go back to your first question, uh, this wasn't a vessel in the sense that we think of as a maritime vessel. It was a it was a prop for yeah. a movie. So it was almost by definition an, an artificial artifice, if I could yeah. use you know use that word twice. And yet it is, as you say, it's laying there. Uh, the remains of it. There's very little of it left. Remains laying on the beach alongside vessels that actually were working maritime craft and so it is you know those vessels of course are artificial they're made by humans they're artifacts made by humans for specific purposes and then you have this artificial artificial uh boat it's a it's a boat but it's not really a boat it's it's made as a as a movie prop and it it was never designed to to last uh so when the production was over the this husband and wife uh, team that had helped spielberg bought it uh, along with several other uh, vessels, and they towed them to this remote shore there in Manemsha, and they kind of sat on the beach there uh, for decades, really. And occasionally, uh, you know, a souvenir hunter would come by and take a piece, but uh, they they remained fairly intact for about 20 years. But by the late 1990s, Jaws itself had become and continues to become this, you know, crazily iconic film with a big yeah. cult following and it, you know there's a there are twitter accounts with jaws followers numbering in the tens of thousands of people people who can dissect that film frame by frame it really has become like the godfather like wizard of oz and and, and so forth just an incredibly iconic uh, film and so as that process happened uh, people began to sneak onto this fellow's property more and more and and literally cut pieces off of it so it not only was affected by the natural environment wearing it down salt water and so forth. But by this, these cultural processes of people removing bits and pieces of it because they wanted to have a connection, a physical connection to the movie. And this was the, with, with the other vessel gone, this was the only way they could, could get that, that direct connection to it. You know, um, I discovered your work in the, probably in the mid nineties, you had published a book by airship to the North pole about an American explorer and newspaper man, Walter Wellman, who made a number of expeditions uh, to uh, attempt to make it to the North Pole, and uh, a couple of them by more traditional means, uh, you know, using dogs and sledges and that sort of thing, and then, and then makes this kind of radical break and starts using 
lighter than air technology. And uh, you write about it very vividly. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about Wellman uh, and what he was up to. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about uh, your work on Spitzberg. Yeah, uh, well, Wellman was a Chicago journalist. He was born in Ohio. He he was one of hundreds of boys, uh, really, who had the ability uh, technologically, socially, culturally, to set up their own newspaper in uh, the 1870s and 80s. And he started to develop a, a niche for himself as first a, a political journalist because uh, he was he was heavily into politics and that led him to be uh, eventually one of the most, if not the most well-known political correspondent in the United States in the 1990s. That in turn, he parlayed into the patronage of some very kind of a heavyweight folks, senators and cabinet members and so forth in, in, a, in, in a successive uh, U.S. administrations to support his uh, his growing interest in geographical explore, exploration. And he started locally. He, he, he Famously, uh, he, he one of his first exploration trips was to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. I just visited there a couple of weeks ago. To, it was kind of neat to, to, to realize I was going down the same steps that Walter Wellman would have walked down in the late 1880s. Huh. And then he went, uh, he got his newspaper to send him to the uh, Bahamas in uh, 1891 on the pretext of discovering the location where Columbus had first landed in the Bahamas. And the monument that Wellman brought there, made out of cement and so forth, is still there on, on San Salvador Island. That sort of brought him to national prominence as what would, would have been considered a serious explorer slash journalist in the mold of Henry Morton Stanley. Yeah. And Nellie Bly and some of these other kind of uh, celebrity traveling explorers. Exactly. And, uh, but, but I think that you can look at Wellman who's, uh, as someone who then took this to an almost unimaginable level. Uh, he did uh, two ground expeditions, land expeditions over ice expeditions, if you will, trying to reach the North Pole, both uh, catastrophically unsuccessful. And by then he was in his early 50s, uh, health-wise, uh, probably physically, he was in no shape to, to do that again. And that led him uh, to search out people like Alberto Santos Dumont, the, the, the French-Brazilian airship designer, to see if there might be a different way that he could reach the North Pole. That had led him into lighter-than-air technology. Heavier-than-air technology would not have been an option at that point, but lighter-than-air technology, Wellman thought, was. And so uh, Wellman makes two attempts. How many How many uh, attempts did he make in the America? He, he made attempts? three attempts. Uh, the first one did not get off the ground because that airship was just so such a mess, so badly designed. Uh, and, that, and that was in 1906 from uh, Donskoya or Danes Island in the northwest part of what most people in the West call Spitsbergen, which the Norwegians call Svalbard. And then and he tried again in 1907 and 1909. And of course, the reason he didn't go in 1908 is he was covering a presidential election year as a Washington correspondent. So the 1907 redesign and the 1909 airship both got off the ground. Interestingly, by 1909, people had started to forget about him, or at least his impact was seen as not as great as it was. He got more publicity in 1906 when he didn't go anywhere than he did in 1909 when he actually made a fairly serious attempt at the poll. Because by then it was, uh, and and Robert Perry was dealing with much the same thing, is nobody wanted a furthest furthest north at that point. Nobody wanted to know how close you had been to the poll. The only thing anybody cared about was that you had been to the poll, and and Wellman was never uh-huh. able to achieve that. 
One of the things I found so interesting uh, in Wellman's story was, you know, he kind of starts out in that traditional polar explorer vein. And then once he scraps the whole uh, dog sledding thing, he becomes this kind of promoter of the North Pole as a, I guess, a symbol of American technological prowess. You know, he's, he's, there are these photos of him in nice suits talking about his air machine, whereas Peary is really playing on this kind of muscular, primitive, nostalgic guy of the past. And uh, I just thought your work on him was so, so interesting because you were actually looking at his his technology or the, I guess, the remains of his technology up in Spitsbergen. I was wondering if you could talk about what you found. Yeah, it's it, the comparison with Perry is interesting, and I appreciate your, your kind words. Perry had this view of himself, certainly, as almost the image of American masculinity at a time when you had, had a hyper-masculine president in Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Uh, so it, and you had America sort of emerging onto the world stage, first through the the initiatives of President William McKinley. And then after McKinley's assassination, that whole movement was put on steroids by by Theodore Roosevelt. And it was really America announcing itself on the world stage. But how were you going to make that announcement? And uh, for Peary, it was, we're tougher than anybody else. And I think it was, to a certain extent, for Roosevelt as well. And you see that right through the Lost River expedition. And you see it with with Roosevelt and with Peary, you see it uh, to, to the point where he was even says what's, you know, when he loses several toes to frostbite, what's, you know, it's a small price to pay for the North Pole. <laughs> yeah. You just can't see Wellman. I mean, when Wellman got frostbite, Wellman retreated. Wellman wasn't about to get frostbite in the service yeah. of the North Pole, number one. Number two is that uh, whether it was, uh, whether it was uh, Roosevelt's Amazon expedition or Peary trying to reach the North Pole, those fellows were willing to go into the unknown regions or what were considered unknown regions for months, if not years at a time with very little contact, if any, with the outside world. Wellman, as a journalist, had wanted no part of that. He wanted yeah. he, is his, he was a journalist first and foremost. That's why he put he would put the first wireless set on his airship. And even though the airship didn't really work as well as he wanted it to, the wireless he eventually got to work and sent the first wireless messages from the Arctic. So you really have this, you can almost see his message from the Arctic as, as almost like tweets or social media of 1906, 1907, a yeah. hundred years ahead of their time, the kind of things that you see these Arctic tourists doing now on these big icebreakers and ice strengthened vessels, people want to go to the North Pole, but they want to be able to send pictures to their friends and on, put on you know Twitter and Facebook and Instagram that same day. Uh, because why do it otherwise? <laughs> Something yeah. that you can't uh, imagine, say, Fritjof Nansen, thinking about, but you can see Roald Amundsen thinking about, because by the time Amundsen goes to the South Pole, if if you are not able to tell the world with with a verified uh, longitudes, latitudes, and diaries, uh, and so forth, where you've been and when you got there, then you were in big trouble. And and I think Wellman, Wellman, not so much that, but Wellman definitely wanted to be able to reach the North Pole, but he wanted that news back in Chicago the next day. About a year ago, you wrote a book called The Greatest Show in the Arctic, which profiled some uh, American Arctic expeditions that probably most people haven't heard of. These are expeditions that go to Franz Joseph Land at the early, uh, in the early years of the 20th century, 
uh, guys like uh, Anthony Fiala and William Ziegler. Why were you interested in these expeditions that people have kind of buried and yeah, forgotten about? Uh, it was, it was, I want to say it was sort of by accident. That book uh, took 25 years to write. And the reason is, is that uh, no, really no one in the United States, myself included, knew where Franz Joseph Land was, much less its importance. So when I was doing my work in, in Svalbard on Wellman, and then uh, eventually wanted to write something about Wellman's uh, first two land, for his first expeditions of land. One was from Svalbard, so that wasn't a problem. But his second was from Franz Joseph Land. Uh, and in 1993, 94, I knew nothing about that place. There was very little written about it. Uh, so that led me on this quest to find out about who had been there, who had explored it. Uh, and I couldn't get to the American expeditions. These three American expeditions uh, led first by Wellman in 1898 and then by Evelyn Briggs uh, Baldwin in 1901 and then Anthony Fiala in 1903. I couldn't get to those expeditions until I had first taken care of the other sort of elephant of the room, who was this British explorer named Benjamin Lee Smith. His, his name is literally uh, attached to the furthest east point in, in Svalbard, which happens to be the closest that you're going to get, closest you're going to get on land to Franz Joseph Land. And he had made a very substantial early uh, voyage in his own research vessel, very much like a, a Jacques Cousteau type uh, in 1881 and 1880, 1880, 1881. Uh, and the 1881 expedition uh, ended in shipwreck. And that shipwreck was just found by the Russians, uh, just uh, formally announced a couple, about a month ago. So I, I, I wrote a biography of Lee Smith, and that was going to take me about six months to a year. It ended up taking 15 years, <laughs> uh, and that finally yeah, led me back yeah. to all of the Americans in France, Joseph Land. And of course, in those 15 years, a lot of the records, Wellman's records, uh, were available. I was able to make contact with Anthony Fiala's descendants and get access to his diaries. Uh, Evelyn Briggs, uh, Evelyn Briggs Baldwin's papers had been cataloged at the Library of Congress, uh, some more papers had been, uh, including some papers by Baldwin's cousin, a guy named Leon Barnard, had been deposited at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. And a lot of the Norwegian and Swedish diaries, Swedish uh, diaries from uh, Baldwin's expedition, the Norwegian uh, materials from Wellman's expedition, those had subsequently been published, and some of them had even been translated. And uh, where they had not been translated, I, I have some really got, found some very excellent Scandinavian colleagues who translated a lot of that material for me. So there was a huge body of material, huh. most especially at the Stefansson uh, archives at Dartmouth College, which was absolutely magnificent. So all of that taken together, um, and I was invited to go on a, a North Pole trip on, on one of these tourist vessels to the North Pole, which called at Franz Joseph Land four different times in 2006. Oh, wow. So I had experience, some experience stepping foot in the islands themselves, had seen a lot of the sites, and it was time to get to work on that book. Again, it, it, it was going to be done in six months to a year. It took ten years, but uh, but it, I, 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 it was it was it was absolutely worth it because the, I, the by then there was so much primary material, source material that had not been published. That it was just a joy to sort through it all. Meanwhile, you have also been working on um, a radically different kind of project. You've been looking at uh, the expeditions of Thor Heyerdahl in particular his Contiki expedition. I was wondering if you could talk about Heyerdahl's project, um, as well as, you know, I guess by that I mean, what was he interested in proving? And then something about the expedition itself. Well, Tor Heyerdahl was, uh, I, I, I came across as a 10-year-old, as many of us did, by reading Contiki, 
which was one of these. Uh, there were two people, well, three if you include the astronaut John Glenn. There were there were two explorers who were critical in my childhood and in, in this kind of fantasy world that I grew up in walking along creeks and rivers in Massachusetts, thinking about what I wanted to do one day. One was uh, Jacques Cousteau, who was on television every Thursday night with the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And the other was Tor Heyerdahl. Very different kinds of explorers. Cousteau, this very high-tech ship, submarine, airplane, helicopter uh, explorer, scuba tanks and all of that. And, and all of that was wonderful. Uh, and then you had Heyerdahl, who was trying to recreate vessels with materials from prehistoric peoples to see if if they could do more than, say, be, be coasting along coastlines, but in fact could cross entire oceans. Uh, so he launched a series of uh, incredible incredibly daring expeditions between 1947 and 1977, all with uh, primitive recreated maritime vessels, first with Contiki in 1947, and then with the Ra 1 and Ra 2 expeditions, these reed boat ve uh, vessels that were launched uh, from Africa toward the Americas, and then finishing up with, I think, what was probably his not only his most successful, but his most underappreciated expedition, the Tigris expedition in 1977 and 78, where they built this massive reed vessel from the reeds in the marshes of Iraq, and think about this. Saddam Hussein is dictator of Iraq. Thor Heyerdahl gets permission to go into those Shiite marshes of Iraq, the same marshes that after the first Gulf War that uh, Saddam Hussein would destroy, and was able to get permission in 1977 to not only build a vessel using uh, local labor, labor, but to bring in Aymara Indians from Bolivia to help the, the locals bundle these reeds into this massive 75-foot-long vessel, which they then sail down the Shat al-Arab waterway, around the Strait of Hormuz, into the Persian Gulf, uh, all the way to Pakistan, to the, uh, well, first they call in at Bahrain, and then Pakistan, and then all the way to Africa. I mean, it's extraordinary what this individual was able to, to do. And, and today, if you go to the Bahrain National Museum, you walk in the, the front of a beautiful brand new museum, and the first thing you'll see is a mural that shows reed boats moored along the, the, the quay in prehistoric Bahrain of, of 5,000 years ago. And the person who revealed that potential contact of Bahrain being, as it is today, sort of in the cross, the financial and maritime crossroads of the Middle East, the person who revealed that prehistoric history uh, in many ways was, was, was Tor Heyerdahl, or showed, showed that that was a conceivable past. And, and so with Contiki, uh, he was a young researcher who had spent time in the Marquesas, uh, seeing natural elements and plants and so forth drifting in from South America and began to uh, imagine that those natural elements might have been carried by cultural uh, forces, people on rafts from South America. And that led him to this, to go to South America and study indigenous uh, watercraft that led him to the balsa raft, which which led him to a guy named Herbert Spinden at the Brooklyn Museum, who told him quite famously, well, if you think a balsa raft can go from South America to Polynesia, you try it. So this was, to to provide some context for this, uh, Heyerdahl is, is doing, I guess, what you would call experimental maritime archaeology, attempting exactly. to show how one might travel, to show that it's possible for, let's say, uh, prehistoric people to have migrated from, in the case of Contiki, from the Americas to the islands of Polynesia. Is that I, th I, I think that's a good summary, and, and I, I think that's exactly what he was trying to do. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of what he did has been since 
tied up in uh, colonial arguments about diffusion, uh, racial uh, arguments uh, about because you've got this bearded white god Kantiki uh, bringing uh, these cultural elements uh, into places like Easter Island and so forth. So a lot of heavy pushback against that idea, which has recently, uh, I think, gained a, a bit of a, a foothold in the genetics of things like the sweet potato and so forth around the Pacific. But uh, these these ideas of certain cultural elements diffusing from one place to another was very popular 100 years ago yeah, uh, and very unpopular today because it is it is thought to... Uh, diminish the skills, the the, the culture of, of indigenous uh, people around the world. And uh, you make a distinction between, let's say, the work of Heyerdahl in your book, and the work of other marine archaeologists who are whose whose expeditions are pseudo scientific. I was wondering if you could describe the distinction. Yeah, uh, I I try to put forth a rubric by which ex- an expedition of this kind can be considered scientific. Does it have a, a, a definable scientific purpose? And I, and I think when you look at Contiki, there was an attempt to, to demonstrate a very physical kind of experiment, almost like a, in a chemistry lab, can balsa wood stay afloat for the hundred days that was going to be required for, it to, to, for a raft even to float from South America to a Polynesia. That was very much... Uh, not on, not just an open. I think that was pretty much of a closed question, because when we think of balsa wood, if you're my age, then you think of balsa wood as these very kind of light, pliable bits of yeah. wood that you would get at a model shop to make airplane models out of. You can't, you couldn't really conceive of those those same kind of that same kind of wood being strong enough or durable enough to cross an ocean. So that's a very technical question that he solved. Once you freight it, once you freight those same kind of questions with pseudoscience, then it becomes very problematic. And there were several folks who did those, those things. A fellow named Devere uh, Baker, who was a Mormon, who, who built rafts of no particular design. They were just wooden rafts that he had thrown together to show that the uh, Mormon tribes had colonized Polynesia. I mean, these were, these were kind of silly expeditions on their face and had really no scientific basis. They didn't even have really much of a, of a, a spiritual or religious basis. But once Hyredal showed that you could cross an ocean in a raft, dozens of people tried it. And it was more of a kind of an escape from reality than it was a, a scientific a, a attempt. So your your objection is not that they are uh, attempting to do these expeditions, but that the there's no historical grounding for the kinds of craft that they're creating. Either that or they're trying to place on that raft a cultural question that does not belong there. Uh, and that's, huh. that's, I think, where you, where you, where you draw the, uh, have to draw the line. Uh, and it, but if you're up front with what you're trying to do, are, are you trying to do an adventure expedition? Do you just want to do a personal adventure where you test yourself? As someone like William Willis did, he wanted to show that an old man, uh, in his case, in his late 60s, and then he tried it again uh, e- even older, can, can someone at that age have the physical stamina to cross the Pacific, which he showed was he, he could do in an extraordinary series of, of adventures? Then you have a serious, I think, a, a person with serious ethnological aspirations in, uh, in Eric de Bishop, who, who, who sailed uh, both sailboats and uh, Polynesian double-hull canoes all across the, the, the Pacific. He was a master mariner, knew exactly what he was doing. And uh, but when he came to challenge Heyerdahl, he he created this bizarre 
uh, raft out of, out of all of these different elements from different islands in different ways that made no sense whatsoever and wanted to show that forget about going from South America to Polynesia. I can go from Polynesia to South America, which as has been now shown uh, several times, is really not possible, exposing yourself to extreme danger. So let me um, play devil's advocate here for a minute. I see what I see the distinction you're making between, you know, a Heyerdahl's work and some of these other folks. But I've always been a little skeptical of these reenactment expeditions. I think because while they do show that something is possible, they don't show that it happened. And yet, oftentimes people who are running these expeditions seem to not make that distinction very clear. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, there was an expedition, I think, about 15 years ago by Philip Beale, who wanted to show that a Phoenician ship design could make it around Africa and was kind of pitching this as, you know, I'm going to prove that the Phoenicians were the first ones, not the Portuguese, to go around Africa. Or, you know, in 2005, I think um, Tom Avery, the Arctic adventurer, uh, tried to sledge to the North Pole and he made it in, I guess, 36 days. And he came back to say that this uh, rewrote the history books about uh, Robert Peary, showing that Robert Peary could have done it in that period of time. Yeah, and my response to and, that was that uh, that Avery was about 35 years old. Try it again when you're 53, which is how old yeah. Peary was, and then tell me that Peary could do it in 35 days. <laughs> so anyway, I was, I, I was, I w- I'm wondering what you think we gain by by showing that it's possible rather than it. Well, happened. I think in in Heyerdahl's case, he had the the luck, if you want to call it that, of the being first. Yeah, it was a sensation. Uh, he was a brilliant writer. He was an incredible marketeer, and he was writing at a time when racial sensibilities were a bit different than what they are uh, now. Certainly, in fact, there was a, a deconstruction of Hardall done a, a couple of years ago uh, called uh, "A Hero for the Atomic Age," which I think unfairly, in in many respects, tie him to Nazi programs with of racial purity and so forth. Uh-huh. I don't think Hardall was guilty of that at all. Uh, because if you read his treatise on contact between the Americas and Polynesia and the years that he spent in the, say, in the Kropelian Library in Oslo, for example, looking at sources in multiple languages, looking for cultural uh, either artifacts or connections that would have some bearing on this issue, he found hundreds of them. And so he had a, a very definite scientific basis for suggesting, look, I think that there is there there are these elements here and there are these elements over there, and it's at least suggestive. Now, of course, you can criticize, well, this element might have taken place 2,000 years ago, and then he's pointing to this other element that took place 500 years ago. There's a 1,500-year gap there. Yeah. Chances are there's no connection there, no matter how similar the cultural elements are. Uh, these other folks who are trying to do these things, first of all, as as you well know, in, in science, you don't really you don't prove anything. You try to disprove that something happened. Right. And I think yeah. you can look at Kantiki as an attempt to disprove. Now, of course, Hyredal was trying to disprove uh, that you could cross the Pacific in a ball's rift at risk of his own life. Uh, and he was yeah. very clear about this, that most people thought that he was sailing to his certain death. To, such a raft wouldn't survive. They'd all be dead. Then, of course, in 1947, there was nobody coming after them. There was no helicopter rescue units. There was They were out of the shipping lanes. If they were sinking, no one was going to save them. So he was really willing to notice patterns scientifically, come up with this kind of almost inadvertently, this method of testing 
to disprove that it could be done. Now, of course, if he had disproven it, he'd be at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and I don't think most people trying these expeditions are willing to go that far to test their ideas. So I think he's in a different category than almost all uh, of these other folks, with the exception of some really extraordinary modern explorers like Phil Buck is, is excellent. John Hazlitt is a magnificent who, who tried over and over again to show that a balsa raft could connect the culture areas of South America and Central America, uh, uh, again, at almost a uh, risk to his life. So there are some serious folks with serious ideas out there. And they and it's it, it, again, and to, to try to take a cultural experiment, which is what a maritime, recreated maritime vessel is, and put it on a real ocean in real conditions is absolutely not like doing an experiment in a chemistry lab. Now, you can do a chemistry experiment and blow up your chemistry lab, I, uh, granted, but it's much more dangerous to put yourself on that raft and test your ideas uh, uh, that way. And of course, you're not sailing on the ocean as it was 2,000 or 5,000 years or so. You, you'll never, uh, right. you know, go, if we can go right, way back to the beginning uh, where we started this chat, uh, I was when I was at Mammoth Cave a couple of weeks ago, there was a National Park Service ranger, a wonderful man. And someone asked him, there's a lot of historic period graffiti in that cave. And someone asked, is there any prehistoric imagery in there? And he said, yes, there's some, what we think is prehistoric imagery. Uh, and of course, the next question someone asked was, what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> and, and everybody had their own, their own hypothesis as to what it meant. And the park ranger was, was gave, I think, probably the best answer you could possibly give, which is the only person who knows what that symbol means is the person who made it. So as it, we try to recreate the technology, but we can never really recreate the thought process behind that technology. Yeah. PJ Capilotti, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, Michael, thank you. It was my pleasure. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.